as we look at in the in the God's word, we see in the book of Acts there are many accounts of persecution of the believers, even when it began to grow, when it was planted as a new church. In Acts four, Peter and John were thrown in jail and put on trial for preaching Christ. In Acts five, Peter and the apostles were thrown in jail because of the jealousy of the high priest and the Sadducees. In Acts seven, Stephen was stoned for his faith in Christ. Acts 8 said that there was such a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And during that time, in Acts 8, 3, it tells us that, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and drawing off men and women. He would place them in prison. Ironically, Paul the persecutor himself, after he became a believer, suffered and faced persecution. 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27 he, he writes, Are there servants of Christ? I speak as I have been saying. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in times of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. See, as, as we look through the annals of Christian history, we have seen that many saints have been martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr is probably the most well-known martyr, uh, post-New Testament martyr that we know of because of his name. The English word martyr is actually born from the Greek term martus, meaning witness. But because of the severity and brutality of the persecution of Christian witnesses during the Renaissance in England in the 1550s, it changed the entire meaning of that word such that it doesn't even hint to its original meaning. But if you look, check a dictionary now, what is the definition of witness? It's, it would read, a person who willingly suffers or dies for any belief, pro- cause, or principle. And if you have read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, chronicling the brutal persecution of Christian witnesses in England, you would understand how this, the meaning of this word changed so radically. And as you know, persecution of the church continues today. About 10 years ago, by God's providence, I met a man, a remarkable man, in the country where I serve. He calls himself Pastor John. And one, time, one year I invited him to the Shepherds Conference, and one day as we were getting ready to go to the conference early in the morning, we were getting changed, and he had taken off his pajamas, and I saw his back. And what I saw on his back shocked me. There were scars on his back. I asked him, how, how did you get these scars? And he told me he got them in prison. What had happened is that he and another group of pastors were going for training, and before their training session could start, the police had come and arrested them all and sent them straight to prison. Well, he was stuck in this cell, this crowded cell that was so crowded and so filthy that there was no room for them to sleep. They had to turn sleeping on the ground. There was no latrine. They only had to go in the corner. Despite these horrid conditions, he shared the truth of God's word with these men, a captive audience. 
three of them, through the teaching of the gospel of Christ, came to know Christ. And they were so eager to learn, they, they hungered and thirsted for the word of God that they had never heard before. And they took the scraps of paper that they had and began writing down the, the verses, the verses that John had recited to them by memory. These precious words of God. But later on, when the guards shook them down, when they, he, they strip-searched them, they discovered these, these, these verses, God's word, in the, on these pieces of the paper in the pockets of these prisoners. The guards were furious. How could the word of God be taught in this prison? They demanded to know where they got these, these words from. And the, the men told them it was from Pastor John. The guards were, 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 were hell-bent on making sure that this didn't happen again in their prison. So they took Pastor John and the three men and marched them down in front of the entire prison to the central courtyard of the prison where everybody could see them. In the courtyard, they had them stripped naked and they had them kneel down on the ground where they proceeded to flog them to make an example of those who would harbor God's word in their pockets. They had to put a stop the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These three new believers and Pastor John. Pastor John told me many other stories of persecution he has suffered from his government. Persecuted for his faith, for his righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Serving the ministry of the gospel of his Lord Jesus Christ. And as we hear this, the question might come up in our mind. How could this terrible thing happen to this person, this man who lived righteously, who spoke the righteous words of Christ? And you know that this question not only comes up in your mind, but if you share the gospel with some of your friends, some of your unbelieving friends, or some of your unbelieving family, a lot of times they want to put a stop to that. And what they, they throw you out a question that you cannot answer. They would throw out to you right away, if God is so good, why is there so much suffering in this world? And then they might say, if, that's, if God is who he is, why do bad things happen to good people? They might even use you as an example. You're a good person. You suffer. What kind of God do you have? How can I believe in such a God? And that's exactly where these people end up. They erroneously conclude that either God is good, but not powerful enough, so he can't save those that he loves. Or that he is powerful enough, but he's not good enough to save those he loves. But they end with the same problem, right? They will not believe in God. But we, we have the word of God, the truth of God. We know that God is both good and powerful. Amen? Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is all-powerful. Absolutely powerful. James 1.17 tells us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is infinitely good. So how do we as Christians, how do we as believers who confess Jesus Christ as both our Lord and Savior come to grips with this apparent contradiction, this paradox? What is the truth concerning this conundrum? How do we 
have that faith, live out that faith that God is both good and powerful. How do we answer our detractors? So today, from 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, we are going to examine six important truths about persecution as believers so that we will not lose hope in the midst of suffering for Christ. We will examine six important truths about persecution as believers so that we will not lose hope while in the midst of suffering for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to, sorry, verse 6 to 8. Six truths pertaining about suffering for the believer in this world. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. You can follow along in your translation, which I believe the English Standard Version. First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, and you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see, a lot of times in this world, we are faced with questions that seem like they're impossible to answer. It seems like a paradox, a conundrum. But the Word of God always gives us the answer. It always has the truth there. You know, the perennial question, which came first, the chicken or egg? We have the answer, right? The chicken came first. We know that. It's not a puzzle to us. God has every answer we need. God, the Scripture is so sufficient for us. And so even this question about God, about bad things happening to good people, God's word gives us the corrective truth. When we come to First Peter, the first thing he tells us when we come here, we see that what? For the Christian, number one, suffering for Christ brings great joy. Suffering for Christ brings great joy. He says, in this you rejoice, or NASB, in this you greatly rejoice. What happens is before we come to this section of what Peter, that Peter is going to be teaching us about, about suffering and persecution and trials, Peter first describes the believer's so great a salvation in the Lord in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. And, and he, he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us all to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What a great salvation, an eternal salvation, one that's preserved by God for us. But even though there's such a great salvation reserved for us, Peter, as he continues teaching in verse uh, 6 onward, he in this session can see that despite this wonderful pronouncement of, of concerning our salvation, we will suffer pain and grief in this world as aliens and strangers. Because he says, in this you greatly rejoice. In this salvation, you will greatly rejoice. In this salvation that is coupled with what he teaches follow, the persecution that comes along with it. So when he talks about our, our suffering as believers, it's not an if, but it's a when. As a believer, 
As part of salvation, you greatly rejoice. We what follows, even though now for law, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You're going to go through trials. Men and women of God, children of God. Despite the great salvation the Lord has reserved us, we're going to suffer. We're going to be persecuted. But what Paul, Peter does here is even though that's going to happen, this is what it needs to be, the way it needs to be. It needs to be what? In great joy. In this you greatly rejoice. Suffering for Christ is to be considered great joy. Why? Because A, it is commanded for the believers to have this subtle attitude. James 1, 2 writes it this way. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What, what, uh, what we have in the English, I consider, in, in the Greek, is an imperative. It's a command. It was, James is commanding us, consider all joy. You're commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to consider joy when you suffer. And, and, but the problem is, when, when, when we receive a command, we as Christians, when we are told to do things, what's our initial reaction? A lot of times it's, it's easy for you to say. Easier said than done. No, a lot of times we hear that. Talk is cheap, right? I'm going through this hard time, and you want me to be joyful? Why, are you crazy? Commanding is easy, isn't it? We can tell, we as parents, we love it. We like to tell our kids, okay, pick up your toys, clean the dishes, wipe your feet when you come to the house, things like that. It's great. And what does a kid do? It seems like it's impossible to wipe their feet before they come in the door. God knows that. We're like that, aren't we? So he doesn't stop there. He just doesn't stop with the command. Like he, he's, he's just a, a set of laws or regulations. He knows us. He knows our weakness. He knows us that when he gives us a command, he has to help us with it. So it's not only commanded for the believer to have this subtle attitude of joy when we are suffering, but because it is fellowship of Christ. Fellowship of Christ. First Peter four thirteen. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You know the old adage, "Misery loves company," right? So here is the best company we have when we suffer. It's fellowship with Christ. That word that's translated "share" in my translation is from the word, the verb koinoneo, which also can be translated as fellowship. To the degree that you fellowship with Christ in the sufferings of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? What incredible company we have when we suffer. A fellowship with Christ. But you know, some people might say, well, that, that's fine, fellowship in misery. So we're crying together, we're miserable together. But that, how, how can we have joy? Yeah, you know, we fellowship with Christ, we're going to be weeping with Christ in this pain. We know God, He created us, He knows us inside out, He knows exactly what He is. He doesn't stop there. Because not only does He command it to us, not only does He give us fellowship in it, that he walks alongside us, but believers are empowered objectively by the Word and the Spirit. See, God never commands us to do something unless he's going to help us. You know, we can't do it on our own. 
First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 You also became entertainers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tri- tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There it is. We, the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's how he helps us. He has his truth in front of us where we can read and be directed to the right way. He gives us the Holy Spirit so we can obey it with joy. To do it with joy. You know that without God, without His Spirit, without Christ, we can't do anything. And His promise is always there for us. His word is always good. John fifteen ten to 11. This is what the joy that we have in Christ, through Christ. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that you... that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full or the other way you can translate may be made complete or be made perfect. That joy that we have is made perfect because of Christ. Because He first obeyed God, uh, obeyed God the Father, the commandment and like Him, we also obey and that's where our joy comes from. Through Christ. And this is in chapter 15 of John, where Jesus tells us, you cannot do anything unless you're in me. Not only suffering for believers is a source of joy, but number two, but it is also passing. For the Christian, suffering for Christ is temporary. 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, even though now for a little while. Whether we're suffering from the persecution of sinful men or living in, for living in this sin-fallen world, Peter understood that during the time of suffering, it seems like that pain will never go away. That persecution was never, that seems like it will never stop. It seems like an eternity of pain. It looks so hopeless, like everlasting torment. But Peter encourages and strengthens our resolve by telling us the fact, the truth, that suffering is what? It's only for now. It's only temporary. It's not forever. Although it may seem like it. We are creatures, because we are creatures limited by time and space, we're in the midst of suffering. We're going through it as though in the here and now. Because, you know, that promise is for the future. But we live bound by time. So when we're in it, we're stuck there, it seems like. And that little while seems like it's never going to end. That's the reality. We live in the here and now. So when it's happening, it seems like, when is this ever going to stop? When is it ever going to end? When are those, those barbarous darts that are being pitched at us going to end? That future is beyond all our sensory perception. We are physical creatures. We can't see it. We need something concrete. The future is abstract. It's not here yet. It's perceptual. The psalmist cries out in the midst of persecution, When wilt thou execute judgment on those who persecute me? When? Habakkuk 1-2, Habakkuk cried out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not save. When is it going to end? 
So Peter has to tell us that not yet the unrealized truth during our time of suffering, the truth that transcends time and space and our limits, that one day it will end. It is only for a little while. Whether in this lifetime, but certainly and absolutely in the next, that suffering will come to a complete termination, a full stop. To make sure we don't miss this truth, he repeats it later on in his letter. First Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this is such an important truth. Because we have a God who is eternal and infinite. So he can tell us the truth about our future. It's only for a little while. It's going to end. So not only does Peter know this, but also Paul recognizes that the suffering for a believer is only short-lived. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the truth. It's only for a little while. Even though in the midst of it, in a scene light, it's never going to end. It seems like the attacks will never relent. But not only is suffering for a believer a source of joy and is temporary, but for the Christian, number three, suffering for Christ is necessary. Peter says here, back to verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. This word, necessary, can be translated as inevitable, inevitability, that which necessarily must take place, often with the implication that it's absolutely going to happen, it's going to take place. And this word for necessary, interestingly enough, does not mean it's necessary because we need, we need to suffer because it's a moral obligation, nor does it mean suffering because we have sin. But this necessary means that it is a logical necessity for us to be distressed by various trials. Why is it a logical necessity for us to suffer? Why is it a necessary, uh, logical necessity for us to be distressed by various trials? Because, A, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. You know, Christ suffered for us, right, on the cross? Did he not? But even more important than that fact is that it was necessary for Christ to suffer because it was part of God's sovereign plan for him. Isaiah 53.10 But the Lord was what? Was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Romans 8.32 Who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. Um, You know, we as fathers or we as mothers, when we have a son or a daughter, a new baby, and, and, and I know uh, 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 Joe Teal is so blessed to, they have a grandchild now. And, and with this little baby, you know, I bet you the father, when he got this little baby, the first, the first thing he's thinking about, how can I protect this little life that the Lord has given me? And don't you as a father, as you, you watch your son or your daughter grow up, where, uh, that, uh, that, uh, the first time you take that child biking, what is the first thought in your mind? You don't want that child to fall. You don't want him to skin their knee. 
You want to do everything to make sure that that child is well balanced on the bike, and he's not you're behind and ready to catch him before he falls. What father in his right mind would want pain in his son's life? But here, what does God say? What does God the Father tell us? He says Romans eight thirty two, who did not spare his own son, but delivered up for us all. That is an incredible truth. That just boggled my mind when I read it. As a father, I cannot even comprehend this. I have two sons and lords given me. It would kill me if they had to suffer. But what did God do? He did not spare his own son. What does that mean? He did not spare his own son. He did not give a quarter. He did not give the smallest bit of mercy. He did not hold back a little smallest vision of his wrath on his son when he went to the cross to die for our sins. That was the father to the son. It was necessary for Christ to suffer this incomprehensible amount of pain. God's full wrath for our sins poured out on His Son. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and suffer immensely, infinitely. And also for a Christian, suffering Christ is necessary because it's necessary because of what? Because of our obedient love of Christ and because of the world's hatred of us. Or another way to say it, because we live righteously and the world hates Christ. But they just suffer because of their obedient love for Jesus Christ and God, in order for the sake of righteousness. We are not talking about suffering from the consequences of our sin, but suffering for doing what is right, doing what God commands us to do from His Word. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And because they do what he commands, because they love him, they will suffer unjustly. John fifteen eighteen to 20. If this world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. And you know, brothers and sisters, you week after week, you sit under the teaching of the word of God. And you, when you leave here, you want to live it out. You want to do it. You want to be godly. Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's you. Not only suffering with Christ is necessary because Christ first had to suffer, not only because of our being love for Christ, but also we suffer because suffering for Christ defines who we are. It shows that we truly belong to Him, that we're saved. First, we are two nineteen and twenty. For this finds favor, if for the sake of a conscience towards God, a man bears up under sores when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin, you are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And who are the people who find favor with God? This word favor can be translated grace. This finds grace with God. Who gets grace from God? Those who are of Christ Jesus. 
those who are the believers. That defines who we are. We're of God. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Christ the righteous had to suffer and die for my sake, for your sakes. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ's suffering was necessary for our justification, for our sanctification, for our very salvation. Because of Christ's suffering, we are brought and belong to God. In fact, suffering for Christ's sake, again, to repeat it, defines who we are and who we follow. 1 Peter 2, 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Suffering is something. This is defined in the lexicon. This idea of suffering and the Christian is so tied together that even a lexicon puts it this way. Suffering is something that should happen because it is fitting for a believer of Christ to follow in his steps. BDAG, page 214. And D, it is by God's grace that we suffer for Christ. Not only it defines us as belonging to God, but it's also by God's grace. It's necessary for us to suffer because it is by God's grace that we suffer for Christ. Philippians two, no, sorry, Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. And this is amazing verse because it puts together the flip side of a coin of salvation. Not only is it granted, been graced to you for Christ's sake to believe in him but it's also been grace to you to suffer for his sake they go hand in hand salvation and suffering so it's by God's grace that we suffer just as Christ also suffered in his in this world for the sake of righteousness suffering for Christ separates us out as righteous people as those who belong to God Not only is suffering for a believer a source of joy, temporary and necessary, but also for the Christian, point number four, suffering for Christ is real. Real. It is very real. 1 Peter 1.6 You have been distressed by various trials. When we read the book of the history of the church in Acts, we, we read about the suffering, the persecution, the violence done to believers, the stoning of Stephen, the stoning of Paul, the imprisonment of Peter, and so on and so forth. Persecution is real and is unfriendly. And frequently when we talk about Christian persecution or suffering, we typically think about that great Christian who is overseas in this government-restricted country who's been thrown in jail for his faith. Or perhaps you think about Pastor John who was, who was flogged for his sharing the gospel in that country. We, oftentimes we think of these, these Christians we place on a pedestal. We may think of a missionary who's left the comfort of their home only to go to some foreign country, only to be brutally murdered by the very people who's bringing the truth to, the truth to, like Jim Elliot. But when Peter speaks here, he's not only talking about the physical persecution. 
And he's not saying that physical persecution is illegitimate. No, he's saying that the suffering that, that is included, the persecution that is included in this, in being persecuted for the righteousness for the sake of Christ, also includes mental anguish. Because he says here, if you have been distressed by various trials, various trials means any kind, many color, all kinds of trials. So it's inclusive. It means every kind of trial. But what tells us is that this is also includes mental or emotional distress is because of the word that he has here, distressed, or we can translate grieved. And, and grieved is in the mind, in the hearts. It's the mental, psychological, emotional pain that we suffer, that Christians suffer when they're persecuted. The pain in the battlefield of the mind. And that is probably the hardest part of suffering. This is the same mental pain which Christ had to endure on his way and on the cross at the hands of his own people. They had no reason to persecute him because he was a holy, righteous, a perfect man, a sinless man. He has not broken any one of the laws. But emotional suffering is real. The intangible persecution is very real and personal. Persecution is real and personal. And let me tell you, you know, under your former administration, under the Obama administration, you, you have to understand, as Americans, you have, you, you're, you're part of the greatest nation in the whole world. When something happens in America, the whole world notices. What happens here impacts other parts of the world. Under the Obama administration, gay marriage became legal in the U.S., you have to understand, in the country where I serve, everybody thinks that America is a Christian nation, that every American that goes, goes in this country is a Christian. <clears throat> and so, so when, 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 when this country legalized gay marriage, it has impact over there. One of the ladies from our church, he, she was sharing, had been sharing the gospel with an unbelieving friend for years, to no avail, but she persisted. And then when this happened, the next time she went to share the gospel with this friend, her friend turned the tables on her, looked her square in the eye, and said, your God is useless. Your God is powerless. Because look what happened in America. Gay marriage is legal. And your God couldn't stop that. Isn't that abomination to your God? This poor lady in our fellowship didn't know how to answer this woman. She lost hope. She became despaired. This may be a powerful illustration but the individual, the person who suffered the most unjustifiable, the most uncalled for, the most undeserved, the most unfair, the most unmerited, the most unjust persecution and suffering is our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he, when he went to the cross, what happened? Mark fifteen twenty nine to 32 
tells us, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him. Among them were saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. This is not about physical pain. This is talking about the mental anguish, the psychological anguish of these untrue accusations, these lies, this persecution hurled at Christ. This is the emotional persecution Christ suffered at the hands of his own people, his own countrymen, his own subjects. It is more than real. It is real and very personal. These were his fellow men. His brothers. And isn't that the most painful persecution? It's not from the enemy without. It's from the enemy within who claims to be your friend. Who claims to be your brother. The ones who know the faith that you have so they can drive that knife into your back in such a malicious way. Jesus was not reviled here by the Romans, by the government in control, but by his very own countrymen, his own supposed to be, he's their king and they're his subjects. Psalm 55 tells, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him, but it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Stephen was stoned not by Gentiles, but by his own countrymen, the Jews. And this was approved by one who supposedly loved the laws of God, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul of Tarshish. Persecution is very real and very personal. It doesn't get worse than that. Persecuted by one who should love you. First, and how did Jesus deal with that? First Peter 2, 22-23, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Brothers and sisters, when we are persecuted by those, it's just those who are right beside our heart. We need to consider our joy. We need to entrust ourselves like Christ did to him who judges righteously against him who had judged you so unrighteously. It hurts, doesn't it? But consider our joy. Not only is suffering for a believer and follow Christ a source of joy, temporary, necessary, and real and personal, but also suffering for Christ. For the Christian, suffering of Christ is valuable. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. 
And as you know, there's a huge misunderstanding and suffering in this world, and even by Christians in this world. A misunderstanding of suffering will contribute to a misunderstanding of God, His goodness, His sovereignty, His omnipower, omnipotence, omnipotence. People would say God is good but not powerful, or God is power and not good. And the misunderstanding of God would contribute to unbelief, total personal loss. For the unbeliever, it is marked by hopelessness and joylessness. We will have no joy if we don't understand the truth about persecution and suffering. And Peter, what better man to teach that? Because he knew from his own personal life that experience. When Jesus was betrayed by Jews and captured by the Jewish leaders, Peter feared men and the persecution of men. So instead of making that faithful confession in Christ, he denied Christ three times when he was put to the test. Matthew 26, 27 records what happened. He lost all joy. The command, consider all joy. He didn't consider all joy. Matthew 26, 75. And he went out and what? And wept bitterly. That lady in our church, when she didn't understand persecution, she lost her joy. But Jesus knows. He knew that Peter one day would minister to those who will face persecution. Luke twenty two thirty one to 35, Peter was shifted like weak by Satan, but as for them by Christ, when he repented and turned back his focus on Christ, he was strengthening his brothers, and that is what he is doing today. He's bringing, strengthening us, his brethren, thousands of years later, with the truth of, about persecution and suffering. Peter knew God's truth, knew man's weakness, even a believer's difficulty in understanding suffering because he went through it. And God, Christ, gave him the truth. And so in 1 Peter, he is correcting the wrong perception, the wrong perspective of Christian suffering, persecution, trials. God is totally good and God is totally powerful. Peter's understanding of this truth is even reflecting the wording he used as we look at verse 6 and 7. In the English Bibles, there's two words that are synonyms in the Greek. In verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than... Oh, sorry. Trials, so that the proof of your faith. Let's stop there. That word that's translated as trials, and that word that's translated as proof of your faith, can be translated both as trials... Or testing. But there's a difference. The first word we have here in the Bible in verse 6 is a trials that the word that's translated as trials it can also be translated as temptations. Because usually when this word is used, it usually it can be used in context of negative results. So then it's translated as temptation. But then when he goes on to teach more about the truth, he uses this other sentiment that we, is translated in my New American Standard Bible as the proof of your faith. That word proof of faith is another way of saying testing. Because this word, this word that's used as testing is talking about, is, it's talking about assaying metal. The, the testing of metal. 
And so here is used in context of testing gold. And how is gold tested? It's tested through fire. And we put gold through fire. What comes out at the other end? Rotten gold? No, purified gold. So the emphasis of this second term is always on the positive result, on the approval. In other words, that gold that comes through the crucible of fire, when it comes out, it's certified pure, fine, 0.999, fine, pure gold. So when Peter uses to describe our testing, it's now switched to the positive aspect. When you go through that testing, you're going to come out approved. So, here Peter's tone changes from the negative to the positive, telling us that that trial that you go through is going to purify you. And, and the purification is incredible. It says the gold which is even tested by fire. Peter uses gold as an illustration. A gold that's been fine and tested. Pure gold. Go through fire to remove and purge the slag from it. In other words, our faith is compared to that gold. But it's incomparable to that gold. Because why? Because here Peter says that that gold is perishable. And, but that, that testing our faith is what? It's imperishable. That's an imperishable testing that will never go away, that's going to go with us into heaven. It's amazing. Man loves, values gold, right? It's, a, it's one of the most precious things we have in our lives, so man gives a high value to it. The amazing thing in heaven, when we read in Revelation, we walk on that which we don't value. We walk on the streets, we walk on carpet, and big brothers walk on their little brother, brothers, Right? In heaven, we're walking on gold. What man considers valuable, we will be perishable. We'll be worthless. But that faith that we have that goes through the crucible of suffering in this world becomes that eternal, imperishable faith that God gives us. The genuineness of our faith. The purity of our faith. That gold, pure gold, can't even compare with. And how do we know how imperishable it is. You know how imperishable that faith is? Well, we come to point number six. Not only is suffering for a believer or follow Christ a source of joy, temporary, necessary, real, and valuable, but suffering for the Christian, suffering for the Christ is rewarding. It's rewarding. It's so imperishable that it goes with us into heaven so that it's rewarded. It's amazing. First Peter 1.7 may be found to reside in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of commentators, a lot of people here say, hey, wait, stop, what are you talking about? This is talking about the praise, glory, and honor going to Christ. When Christ is real, he's going to be glorified. Amen? Of course, amen. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you. But that's not said in this scripture here. It's said in many other scriptures. Because when we come to the scripture, a lot of people assume it's saying what other scripture says. Because, you know, indeed Christ is going to have received praise, glory, and honor. But the praise, glory, and honor that's talked about here is not the praise, glory, and honor that's going to Christ. It's praise, glory, and honor that goes to those who's gone through the crucible of suffering and persecution in this world and has come out the year and is pure gold that God is going to ascribe to them praise and glory and honor. And the, the question in your mind is, how can you say that? 
You're absolutely right. When I first read this verse, I thought that was the praise going to Christ. But when I studied the meaning of the word, this word for praise, I, I found out from the lexicon that this word is only used in the entire Bible in describing praise that goes to men. Another term is used when it's describing praise that going, is going to God. It's never used to describe praise going to God. So because it's a head of these three terms, it controls the meaning of what follows, that gives the context of what follows. So that praise that goes to man brings along with it that glory and honor that goes to the man or woman who has gone through the crucible of suffering and come out as pure gold at the other end. Isn't that amazing? It's undeserved, is it not? Because it is only God that enables us to do it and then grants, graces us to go through it. What incredible, undeserved reward. We don't deserve it. God did it all. God graced it to us. Christ graced it to us. And it's only because of Christ that we receive it. The glory of the believers will be given is the glory in Christ. We are glorified in Christ at his coming. As Christ was bodily resurrected, we shall also be raised. We shall be raised imperishable. Christ was the first fruits of all that. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In contrast to perishable goat. We will receive honor. You know that word honor, it means literally to place a high value of worth on somebody, ascribe that worth to somebody. So to receive honor means that a high value is placed on us. Our honor, how do we get that? Our honor is given us through Christ and because we are redeemed and paid for through his sacrifice of infinite value. So our honor or the value ascribed to us is through Christ. And that, what kind of honor of that? What value is that? That's a priceless value because Christ's sacrifice was priceless. The world loves to come out and go because of the, the high value man describes to it. But God ascribes the high value of Christ on us. That's how we are assessed. 1 Peter 2.21 Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Our value is through Christ. Peter completes his encouragement in this section of his letter to the believers who are suffering as they undergo trials or will undergo trials. And reminding them that they are to be a, Peter characterized by what? And when they go through the suffering, they are to be characterized by what? By, in this you rejoice. Rejoicing in Christ. The believers are to rejoice always because of their salvation is sovereignly and graciously given and guaranteed by God. And the flip side of that is the suffering that comes along with that. At the beginning of the section, in verse 6, Peter tells, reminds the believers that in this you greatly rejoice. And he concludes this section and circles back to that joy. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Full of glory, with joy inexpressible. Paul begins this section teaching on persecuting with joy 
and ends it with joy. He bookends this section with joy. Great joy. Joy inexpressible. And this joy, word joy, is that term that talks about our entire attitude, our entire expression from the heart. The total expression of inner joy which, which oozes out of the person. And so when we go through persecution, when people look at us, it needs to be looked, seen as a light booked in by joy. Our other joy is what forms the bookend bracketing our suffering, our persecution. Joy is what characterizes believers in the midst of persecution. This, that's what Jesus said when he called, uh, called us, called in what we call the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you when men cast insults and persecute you. Blessed or happy are you, right? Happy are you. And that, that word, are you, that verb is in the indicative. This indicates who you are. This is what you are. You're happy when you're persecuted. That's what you are. So what Peter is telling us, as we trust and believe in Christ through our suffering, no matter how much mental pain it causes, no matter how emotional anguish there is, no matter what we have endured or how long it is, our experience of suffering is surrounded by our constant attitude of joy. And this is only possible because we're in Christ. Again, verse 8. And though you have not seen him now, you love him. And though you not see him now, but believe in him. It's only in him that we can have this great joy. You greatly rejoice with joy in his vessel, full glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brings back salvation and suffering together. When, when we read this, verse 8 and though you do not see, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. What does that remind? You? What verse does that remind you of? What is this really about? It's really about what your faith, your faith in Christ. Listen to Hebrews eleven one. Exactly the same thing. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And though you do, have not seen him now, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. It's the convictions of things. It's your faith. Your faith in Christ. That's what suffering is about. That's why you can consider all joy. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible corrective truth that you have taught to us through your servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you gave him the experience of the truth in his life so that he can also teach it to us to encourage us in this day so many thousands of years later as we suffer persecution at the hands of those who are around us, those who are enemies and those who are friends. And Lord, Help us to continue to live out a life of perseverance of faith in you so that we will certainly consider all joy, that we will, in this will greatly rejoice in the persecution and suffering we receive when we are insulted, when we are reviled, when we are beaten down, when we are seem lost, that we will but 
rejoice in you. We also pray for the brethren in that country over there as they face that per- persecution that's coming, that is already here, that they also might greatly rejoice in Jesus Christ and for the sake of your glory. We pray. Amen.